Uh, as I told the people up in the uh, Cape Britain, we, uh, we've done so much ministry across Canada that Canada is my second home away from home. Uh, I worked with Heartcry Missionary Society for 15 years as a coordinator for Eastern Europe. So we've had 28 to 30 missionaries in Romania, Moldova, and the Ukraine. And so when I'm over there, that's my number one home away from home. But secondly is Canada. Because uh, the Maritimes themselves, uh, I think we've done somewhere over 80 conferences or local church meetings in the Maritimes. And so always a joy to come back. Feel really, really encouraged around Canadian Christians. You know, not everybody in Canada is a Christian, just like the United States, are they? A lot of people, you know, are in churches, but they're not Christians. But there's just a real sweet bond, to put it in Anne of Green Gables terminology or theology. Uh, there's kindred spirits, you know, when we're in the context of the Maritimes. So it's a joy to be back tonight. Thank you for being here. I want you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans and chapter number five. Most of the time anymore, when I go to a church or I do a conference, I get an assignment. So they want me to speak on a particular theme. Sometimes it may be four messages, sometimes as many as eight messages. And so before I go to a church, if I don't get an assignment, I talk to the, I guess what you would call the premier elder that basically anchors the pulpit. But sometimes I'll talk to all the elders in a church what do you feel like I can do? What can I share that would be an encouragement to your people? And that's not a loaded question. I simply want to know how I can come and be a blessing and encouragement to the people of God. Uh, I'm not coming in to be the pastor's hit man or the elder's hit man, but rather just to come and hopefully what I have to say complements what God's doing in the church and through the ministry of the elders. And so I asked Brother Corey a couple times, I said, Brother, what can I, what can I do? What can I say to be an encouragement to your folks there at the faith family? And, um, and he said, Brother, just whatever God leads you to, 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 to bring, that's fine with us. But then the more we talked about it, it seems as if uh, there was something that came up. And, and the th- something that came up was the subject of the love of God. Now, I must confess to you that when I did a series on the love of God about a year and a half ago, it was a daunting subject. To quote a fellow Canadian by the name of D.A. Carson, he wrote a book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And you think, man, of all the attributes of God, that has got to be the simplest attribute to unpack. But nothing could be further from the truth. It's quite amazing as you begin to plumb the depths of the love of God, just how difficult it is to really wrap your mind around the vastness of it. So much so, I want you to listen to the words of A.W. Tozer. He said, the love of God is the hardest of all his attributes to speak about. Tozer said this. He said, you may not understand God's love for us, He said, I don't know if I do myself. We are trying to comprehend the incomprehensible. 
It is like trying to take the ocean in your arms or embrace the atmosphere or rise to the stars. No one can do it. And I have to say, after undertaking this study to prepare these messages on this theme of the love of God, a wholehearted amen to Mr. Tozer's comments. Now, let's read the text, and then what we'll do is give just a brief introduction, and then we'll move into the message itself. I pray it would be a great encouragement to your heart. But if you would follow with me, uh, I'm reading from the ESV, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And by the way, uh, I'm not doing this to confuse you or to uh, give you the impression, you know, that I'm just trying to uh, make things complex but I do it for clarity. I use a hodgepodge of translations, none that are dynamic equivalent. So basically it's the Old King James, New King James, ESV, and NASB, okay? So bear with me. I'm not doing it to confuse anyone, but rather to give clarity to the text and things that I'll say along the way by the Word of God. So follow with me if you would, beginning in verse number 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, proven character, And character or proven character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. It does not bring us into a state of regret. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we are still, we're still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your people. Oh God, help me tonight. I have sermon notes. In my own carnal reasoning, Lord, I... I know what I would like to do, how I would like to say it, what I would like to convey, but my dependence is upon you. And I pray, O God, that you would come and take the field. 
that you would do something extraordinary tonight. We're grateful for your doctrine. We're grateful for the Bible. But my, how we need an experiential spirituality. And I would ask tonight that you might help us to see clearly and to grasp this subjective, supernatural outpouring of the love of God. Please, Lord, in this day in which there's so much hopelessness that abounds and people's lives are being constantly bombarded by anguish and anxieties, there is nothing I'm convinced that buoys us up anymore as a people of God than these fresh infusions by your spirit of the love of God. So would you help tonight? Would you fill us with the Holy Spirit to not only speak, but also to hear? And we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Quite frankly, I'm very indebted to God's providence. It's interesting that with every assignment that I do get, and whatever I'm called upon when I go into a church to deliver to the people, that is exactly what I need in my Christian pilgrimage. God makes no mistakes. Now, I'm more convinced than ever that He works all things after the counsel of His will and not ours. So this subject tonight is a continued refresher course for me because I desperately need these outpourings of God's love in my life. You see, by understanding God's love, although it is, has proven challenging, yet it's something that at times of difficulty or need in our lives, God is gracious enough by His own sovereign will to grant us this, to buoy us up in our difficulties in life. When you study the background of the Church of Rome, you find that the Christians are being oppressed, not just from the tyranny of a Roman government that is no friend to Christianity whatsoever, but also from the religion of Judaism. These people had an aversion to Christ and Him crucified and anyone that would follow Christ. And here is Paul writing to encourage the saints. You know how he does it? By giving them doses of the attributes of God. Listen to this. You find, for example, only a partial listing back in Romans 2 and verse 4 he talks about the goodness of God. Then he speaks of the love of God in Romans chapter 8, the inseparability of God's love, that no entity physically or eternally can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Furthermore, he underscores the mercy of God, that it's not he that willeth or he that runneth in Romans 9, but God that shows mercy. And then also you find in the book, he 
encourages them with the peace of God in Romans 15 and verse 33. You see, in light of Paul's approach, brothers and sisters, the greatest need of the modern church in this hour is heavy doses of the attributes, the knowledge of God. The reason the church these days are falling apart, they can't reconcile their differences. They're victimized by the world. Oftentimes the homes fall apart. It's because by and large, the church in North America is biblically illiterate. And the reason they are is, do you realize, even in Reformed churches, that many people don't read their Bibles? How are they going to know God without reading the Scripture? And so, there's a great need for systematic Bible reading. And at times, spontaneous Bible reading to give us an intimate acquaintance with this great God. Why is this so important? Because the people that know their God shall do mighty feats. As Daniel says in one translation, they shall be strong and do exploits. Think about this for a moment. If the church of Jesus Christ possessed that understanding of their God, she would find herself invincible Notice I use the word invincible against his plaguing oppressions in this hour. You see, dear brothers and sisters, the early church knew the impregnable nature of such knowledge. But yet do we. I love the words of J.I. Packer here, how timely they are. He said, to know God's love, for example, is indeed to know heaven on earth. But here's the key. If you only know it theologically, and that's the end in itself, you know nothing of the invincibility of the truth of Almighty God. You must know this love experientially. And that's what Paul is bringing them to here in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5 is this love being poured out. You don't have to have a gift of apostolic teaching of being able to decipher the scripture to understand that this is something profoundly subjective. Listen to the words of a man who knew constant grief. His name was the Apostle John. Listen to his experience. Don't miss this now. First John chapter 4 and verse 16. So he says, we have come to know. You know what the word know there means in the original? We have been made to experience. Experience. And to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in this love abides in God, and God abides in him. So my contention tonight, as I share with you, 
And I do share in love. I might come across very aggressive at times, friend, but understand, I love you. I want you to receive this. I pray that you would leave tonight dancing in your heart before the Lord. You would know something of the animated work of the Spirit in your heart to taste, at least taste, of the love of God. You see, it was an experiential encounter of the love of God that sustained John. His conscious sense of divine love constrained him in his perilous journey. So from the days as a follower of Christ to his exile on the Isle of Patmos, he knew no abate of being sustained by the love of God. I thought about this just recently. He referred five times. Five times John said that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, did Jesus show partiality? No, he loved them all the same. But listen, this man knew he tasted experientially of God's love, and he almost felt like he was his favorite. I don't know if you've seen it on Facebook or not, you know, but there are a lot of people, you know, that will accuse you at times of showing favorites toward a child or favorites toward another Christian or favorites, in my case, my grandchildren. And, you know, nobody likes to be accused of that. And I can honestly say I love all my grandchildren the same. But sometimes people think that some Grandchild, one grandchild is getting more exposure than the other. So obviously this must be Brother Don's favorite. Well, John, in his mind, he really felt like there was such a special affection directed toward him that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. But I'm here to tell you, not only did he love all of his disciples the same way, but he loves you that way. He loves you that way. Looking at Romans 5, we see that Paul encouraged the distressed saints in Rome with the doctrine of justification by faith. Now get a load of this. This was prior to Nero's reign. Nero was bloodthirsty. But even before he took the post as the emperor of Rome, they were already the victims of great aggression. And think about this for a moment. The Apostle Conference, the Apostle Paul Conference, those troubled hearts with four benefits of justification. Let me give these to you just very quickly. First of all, you'll notice in verse 1, he speaks of how justification leads to peace with God. It's interesting that this is in the past tense. He taught that this peace could only be attained through faith in the work of Christ. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So think about this. If we rely the slightest on our performance, there is no peace with God. No practical peace. Because if you always think that there's something else you've got to tweak or alter or do or not do, friend, how can you ever experience peace that's contingent upon your own works, your own efforts? Furthermore, another benefit of justification is in verse 2. He gives us grace to stand. 
And you'll notice this is in the present tense. He says, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. What does this mean? Listen carefully. The fruit of justifying faith is what I call resilient grace. In other words, if we're saved, savingly, saving faith, God enables us by his grace to stand. And think about this for a minute. We are not only saved by grace, but we're filled by the Spirit by grace. Sanctification is by grace, just as salvation is by grace. And so all of the Christian life, if we're truly in Christ, we are being supernaturally sustained by grace. Furthermore, he gives another benefit, and that is a certainty of glory. Verse 2. A guarantee of heaven. We rejoice, he says, in hope of the glory of God. Now, what does this mean? It is not the outcome of our self-performance, but a hope based on faith in Christ alone. Now, please watch this. Number four, and I told you I was going to give you these quickly, but it also, this justification, benefits us by producing a character-producing hope. Verses 3 and 4. We rejoice in our sufferings, our tribulations, knowing this suffering, once again, produces endurance, and this endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. So catch what I'm saying here, brothers and sisters. Justification sustained the saints of Rome in their sufferings. We're not just talking about being the object of contempt by people that we work with that have no regard for God whatsoever. But you may be in a troubled marriage. You may be going through some physical adversity in your life. Your constitution may be inclined to depression And most of the time, you walk in life, if the truth was known, in a debilitating depression. But yet, what God has provided for us and the love of God enables us not only to deal with the sorrow, the afflictions in our life, but how about this? Enables us to rejoice in it. Rejoice in it. Their hope of salvation was certain, as it did not depend upon their own merit. And therefore, Paul is saying here, beyond this justification, there is a grace called the love of God that can be poured out in the heart by the Holy Spirit. Many of them had experienced that. Now move quickly, listen carefully. This is a hope, according to verse number five, that does not disappoint, does not put us to shame. In other words, breeds no regrets. In other words, it will not leave you and I with a feeling of shame. Because of what we hope for is rooted in our justification. Please watch now. 
The factors of such endurance are found in four benefits of grace by faith that we just looked at. And all these are supported. This is the underpinning of it. Because he says in verse 5, the love of God has been poured into our heart through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You say, so what? I see that in my Bible. I bank on that. But how does that really appeal to me? Now, please listen very carefully. It's going to get better. Paul assures that the hope that bears us up under the fires of calamity is based upon an experiential love that is supernatural in nature. This is a love, brothers and sisters, that is poured out. The very words shed abroad, by the way, means poured or tipped out. It describes the work of the Spirit. For example, in Acts 2.17, Acts 2.33, Acts 10.45, Titus 3.2, which in most English translations is the word filled, poured upon. One translation reads, God's love has flooded our innermost being. And the reality of such love is conferred because God has given us his spirit. Now watch this. By the comforter's indwelling presence, we are made recipients of a hope that carries us through the most difficult of adversities in our life. So let me wrap this introduction up with this, and I'll give you three simple points, okay? Martin Lloyd-Jones said, regarding this passage, the love of God is poured out in our heart by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul's assertion is that the man who can really rejoice, the man and the woman that can really celebrate and glory in tribulations is the man or woman in whose heart the love of God has been shed abroad. So, here are the three points. If you come in these days, the next couple of nights, you find basically after I give an introduction, I'll give you three things to think about, okay? And then we'll make application, but please don't miss this. First of all, I want you to consider with me the nature of God's love. What's he talking about? The love of God being poured out. Verse 5 again. You'll notice that it is supernatural in nature. Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now don't miss this. Listen. God gives his spirit at the moment of conversion. And of all his many benefits outside the work of his son, the comforter is his greatest. His spirit has been given to his people to aid the believer at times of suffering with the manifestations of his love. 
So what? Listen carefully now. Secondly, not only is it supernatural in nature, but it's also subjective. While we never minimize the importance of what God says in his word, while we understand and believe, brothers and sisters, that the Bible is the foundation of truth in our theology, yet you can't stop there. Understanding God in his word is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end, and that is that you might understand the experiential nature of truth. It's subjective because he says has been poured into our hearts. In other words, God's love is given in some measure at regeneration. But at times, he affords a, watch this now, a felt sense of that love. I love church history. In setting men and women in church history, there were times during persecution. There were times during affliction. There were times during rejection. There were times when there was an intense assault of the evil one that they were buoyed up by manifestations of the love of God. This is what I desire. This is not radically subjective or mystical or something charismatic. It is something for God's people. And Spurgeon said, when God chooses sovereignly to pour out his love upon a people, it's during the context of mighty spiritual awakenings. And Spurgeon said, when that happens, you look at in church history, the testimony is that love flows knee deep. Not just something you know, but it's something that is sensed and all enveloping experientially. Secondly, here's a second point. The occasions, let's talk about the occasions when this experiential love is given. And I'm just going to give you a partial listing for the sake of time, but let me mention three things. You find in church history, you find in the scripture that oftentimes love, this love is manifested, first of all, in conversion. I meet people in my travels who when God saved them and the burden of sin was lifted and the wrath of God was propitiated on their behalf through regeneration, they testify how there was an outpouring of God's love upon their life. I was talking to Charles Leiter and he said, Brother Don, he says, my sister and her husband sought the Lord for months they were open to the work of God. They knew the gospel. And one day, both of them were converted within an hour. And during their conversion, God poured out his love in such a phenomenal way. And so 
I knew these folks because I'd been to their church multiple times. He's just a hardworking farmer with his wife. And so I called Bob Rages up and I said, Bob, I want to verify something. I want to hear the details. Charles tells me that you guys encountered this, this phenomenal manifestation of the love of God. And he said, Brother Don, we did. My wife, she was just emancipated from her sin at the moment of conversion. She was rejoicing in her heart. All afternoon, it was like joy unspeakable and full of glory. And he said, me, he said, I couldn't even talk. I couldn't talk because I was so overwhelmed with the love of God. All I could do is cry for hours and hours. It was something tangible. It was something subjective. The love of God was poured out in our conversion. Secondly, oftentimes this love manifests itself in calamity. We should never limit this glorious work of the Spirit exclusively to conversion. As there are times, brothers and sisters, of suffering when the Spirit provides fresh encounters of God's love. Please listen to this. Once again, you note in our text here that the love of God is poured out in verse 5. And this is in response to the sufferings that other saints have incurred mentioned in verse 3. Not only, once again, are they enabled to endure, but to rejoice in their sufferings. I met some people recently that are going through a horrible marriage. The woman loves God. She wants to please God. And her husband is a tyrant. Some husbands profess to know Christ. But she lives day in and day out in great oppression from the emotional and verbal abuse tried to encourage these women. God understands. He greatly cares for you. And he was able to sustain you and preserve you in spite of the tyrant that you live with by his love. By his love. The history of the church, brothers and sisters, is replete with men and women who through seasons of suffering were made to encounter the sense of God's love. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary in Romans talks about a young minister by the name of Robert Robarts who died of consumption at the age of 36. He tells of his experience when he was dying, how he had chronic a chronic cough and pains in his chest that were absolutely indescribably Difficult. Listen to what happened. In his state of oppression, he related his experience. There was such communion with Christ upon his bed. He was fellowshipping with the Savior through his word. But then suddenly he says, quote, While I was sinking, 
I felt more of the consolations and the supports of my Christian religion than I had ever experienced before. And oh, with what strong and assured confidence was I enabled to look up to my Redeemer. And how gladly would I have resigned my soul into his hands. Now listen to this, what he said. What glorious manifestations of his love and mercy did he make to my soul. And oh, how did I rejoice to believe that in a few days more I should be with him in glory eternal. It is said of him that closer to the time of his death, when he could no longer talk, he wrote on a slate these words, quote, Oh, I am happy in my God, in his love. I am going to possess him forever. Since my last attack three weeks ago, the Lord has been near and has manifested his love. He said that. He manifested his love to my soul in an uncommon degree. Let me share a story from the life of my wife. My wife grew up in what we would call an abusive home. Her dad was not there most of the time when he was, and we don't want to dishonor him. He died last year. And sadly, he went to hell. We did everything we could to cultivate a love relationship with her father. And he responded to it. But he knew nothing of saving grace. He was out of the home much of the time. Cindy had to be the mother at home while her mom went to work. But when he was home, it was like a hell on earth. She had that experience. She went to Bible school when she was 17 years of age, but that lingered. And when we married, when she was 19, it continued to perplex her. We were in Nashville, Tennessee, and a dear friend of ours who's a pastor. Sensing Cindy's dilemma, her oppression, one day he said to Cindy, in my presence, because Cindy thought of God like that, like she thought of her father, intolerant. If you got out of line, he would make you pay. And Brother Al, our friend, said with such a dimension of the Spirit upon his words, he said, Cindy, God is so gentle. Cindy, he loves you. You have no idea how much he cares for you. And you know what, friend? It's amazing how we miss this in the Bible, but you would not believe in the Old Testament and New Testament how God has so fixated His love upon His people that His steadfast love literally never fails. And when Al said that to my wife Cindy, how much God loved her and cared for her, it set her on a journey. which started that very afternoon. She went back to where we were staying and she took her Bible 
And before the Lord, she began to meditate on the Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. And later that day, I saw my wife, her face was aglow. And she said to me, she said, honey, God showed me today how much he loved me. She had had such an encounter with the love of God. She was free. Her words were wrapped with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And this is for you. This is for me. Another thing that we can do to obtain it, not just through conversion, not just through conflict, but also cravings after God. I don't know about you, friend. I'm 69 years of age. In this respect, I feel like a teenager. I want more of God. I'm not satisfied with the status quo. I want more of Him. And He's given me more of Himself. I'd only had one encounter with this work of the Spirit and pouring out His love upon me right after my conversion. And I asked Paul Washer one day, I said, Paul, have you ever had this encounter? You won't hear him talk about it because he doesn't want to give people the impression he's boasting. He said multiple encounters. I said, why is it I'm not experiencing that anymore? You know what he said to me? Maybe you've become too civilized. Everything prim and proper, theologically astute, you know, precise, and I get all bogged down with these things and forget that the Scripture is given for experience. Maybe you've become too civilized. Here's my point. God honors hunger, brothers and sisters. For those who yearn for something more and long for manifestations of that love by the Spirit who is sovereign, they will often be rewarded according to their desire. Do you know anything of an insatiable appetite for the love of God? Once again, Martin Lord Jones cites Howell Harris the Welsh evangelist who was such a beloved friend of George Whitfield. He longed for God. He wanted more of God. Listen to this. Hal Harris on one occasion when God came and he was immersed with the Holy Spirit and the love of God was so strong, he said, quote, suddenly I felt my heart melting within me like wax before a fire and love to God for my Savior. I felt also not only love and peace, but a longing to die and to be with Christ. Then there came a cry into my soul within that I had never known before. Abba, Father, 
I could do nothing but call God my father. God, you're my father. You're my father. And he said, I knew that I was his child. And listen to this. And he loved me and was listening to me. He said, my mind was satisfied and I cried out. Now I am satisfied. Give me strength and I will follow thee through fire and water. That's available for you and I. But do you long for it? Point number three. Think with me for a moment about the enabling of God's love to endure. You see this in verses three through five again. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Once again, we're not just coping, we're not just enduring them, but we're rejoicing in them. That's the product of the love of God being manifested. Shed abroad their hearts. Having that suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character hope and hope does not put us to shame it does not disappoint why because this love is manifest this love is something that we have experienced it's poured out so please listen to this as i wind things down believers need more than a mere knowledge of the love of god they must never be content with a basic understanding brethren of it Therefore, this calls for the discipline of meditation. You see, to think much on God's love in Christ and its implications will afford comfort and hope during seasons of trial. To experience the love of God is to possess a felt sense of divine help in the face of adversity. It will enable the believer to rejoice in tribulation as it affords a confidence that doesn't disappoint even if required to suffer death. For we are made to triumph in Christ when we enjoy a conscious sense of his love. It is a shelter for the weary, a refuge for the perplexed, and a fortress for the ravaged. So here's my concluding thoughts. This is the implications. Three things. First of all, this is important. Now listen carefully. We should never seek for manifestations of the Spirit, even when it comes to the love of God, above the person of Jesus Christ. If you go out of here tonight and say, all right, I'm going to believe God for something more. I'm going to seek this experience. I have failed. You must seek Christ preeminently in your life. You can ask for this experience, but do not elevate the experience above Christ because then the experience becomes an idol. The Lord Jesus Christ must be preeminent in all of our seeking. And here in the context of a church, a culture that's given to mysticism, 
Paul would write the saints at Colossae these words in Colossians 1.18, that in all things Christ might have the preeminence. Listen carefully now. J.I. Packer said it best when he said concerning the overemphasis on signs and wonders and sign gifts. He said, quote, one could wish that this aspect of the Spirit's ministry concerning the love of God being poured out was prized more highly than it is at the present time. But he said, with a perversity as pathetic as it is impoverishing, we have become preoccupied today with the extraordinary, the sporadic, the non-universal ministries of the Spirit to the neglect of the ordinary general ones. Please listen to this now. He concludes by saying, thus, we show a great deal more interest in the gifts of healing and tongues than in the Spirit's ordinary work of giving peace and joy and hope and love through the shedding abroad in our hearts of a knowledge of the love of God. Well said, Mr. Packer. We cannot elevate the experience above the Savior. Implication number two, almost finished. Although a sovereign work of the Spirit, this pouring of God's love out into the heart, the believer's heart, is something that we should ask for. Luke 11, verse 13. But if ye be evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. If Don Curran being evil, know how to give good gifts to his grandchildren, how much more shall my Father in heaven, literally the Greek there is, keeps on giving without measure the fullness of the Holy Spirit to them that ask him. For some believers, it is in response to earnest expectation. For others, it is given in sorrow and suffering but please don't miss this. Regardless, it is something that should be requested. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, believed in this experiential encounter with the love of God. And so he believed that we should ask for it. But we should ask for it not casually, not despondingly, but with fervency. That's where... Jesus, remember, said there in Luke 11, verse 13, to them that ask him, and if you look at the word ask him for these manifestations of the power of the Holy Spirit, literally the word ask there means you earnestly, you fervently ask. So Goodwin challenged the church in his day, quote, sue him for it. Speaking of God, sue him for it. Ask God for it. And don't give up. God, I got this wayward child. I'm feeling the weight of this burden. I need help, Father. Please help. And while my prayer may not be answered, Yet there are times when Christ draws feelingly near 
and the love of God is manifest to affirm and to sustain. Thirdly, and finally, although we may not be given the experience, we will find a vast amount of personal comfort and incentive to rejoice, regardless of our sorrow, no matter where it's coming from, whether it's persecution, whether it's a domestic problem, whatever it may be, regardless of our sorrow, if we will meditate on the objective truth of the love of God in Christ. And that's where, in our context here, he speaks of the subjective work in verse 5 of the love of God. And then he also speaks, and this is the foundation of the objective manifestation of God's love when Christ died for our sin. Notice he says in verse number 8, but God commended his love toward us. He exhibited his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And you know what it literally means? While in the very act of sinning, God extended his love to us. What a God. While I'm carrying out my dastardly deeds and fulfilling this desire of evil within me, Christ died for me. What love. Think about the songs. When I survey the wondrous cross, see, see Watts says, Isaac Watts, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. These guys are not just writing something theologically, friend. They've experienced something. They're writing out of their experience. In his mind's eye, he's meditating upon what Christ has done. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? And then one more hymn. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. This is radically experiential. Listen to the lyrics. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, experiential, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me, underneath me, all around me is the current of thy love leading upward, leading homeward. There's assurance of salvation leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. And then he says this, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus spread his praise from shore to shore. Oh, how he loveth, ever loveth, changes never, never more. How he watches o'er his loved ones, not to call them all his own. How for them he intercedeth, watcheth over them from the throne. You say, this guy had it together, man. He was theologically astute. And man, he must be really going through a very tranquil time in his life. Oh yeah? You know who wrote it? A man by the name of Samuel Trevor Francis. And what inspired the song was one night... He's there in London and he goes down to Hungerford Bridge to throw himself into the river 
to commit suicide because he is experiencing such a prolonged, debilitating experience of darkness, dreariness, and loneliness. And right before he gets ready to cast himself into the river, the love of God is poured out. And he comes to his senses, what am I doing? And he goes home, basking in this manifestation of God's love. And he writes this song. And here's one more stanza. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Love of every love the best. Tis an ocean full of blessing. Tis a haven giving rest. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Tis a heaven of heavens to me. And it lifts me up to glory. For it lifts me up to thee. I'm sorry if you stop at just believing this doctrinally. I'm not minimizing doctrine. I'm not minimizing theology. But if it stops there, you'll fall far short of what God intended this to mean. There's something far more. The experiential nature of the love of God. Let's pray. Your Father in heaven, we're grateful tonight that you're so caring. You bet us to cast all of our care upon you, for you care for us. And Lord, I desire what John testified to that this love he was intimately acquainted with, it was a love that he believed came from you and so much so that he would go so far as to testify not superficially not hypocritically that he was the disciple in whom Jesus loved oh God tonight we're not saying to seek and experience just for the sake of seeking it We want Christ to be first, to be preeminent in all things. But, oh God, in these days, you've created such an unrest in my own heart to want more. And I cannot help but believe tonight, Father, that there are other brothers and sisters here that want more. More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. But what better way of reciprocating that love back to the Lord Jesus than to know mentally and know experientially the love of God. Help us, Father. When revival comes, there will be showers of love. God, would you come tonight? Would thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee and know feelingly the love of God. In Jesus' name, amen.